you'd like to open your Bibles to John chapter 4, we're going to be looking at John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. We're about one page turn through the Gospel of John. This is part of our series called Just That Simple. And it's that recurring theme throughout the Gospel of John that keeps showing up. Jesus plus belief equals life. So we're at John 4, 1 through 26, page 888. Let's go to the Lord prayer together. Heavenly Father, we approach your word this morning in faith. We come opening up your word expectantly. Father, we ask that you would give us the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. We want to see uh, the true meaning of this passage. We want to understand it. We want to apply it. And Father, in the end, we, we need or and want all these things because our aim is to glorify you. So Father, help us to, to listen in faith and to be taught by your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot can happen in one conversation. You can make a new friend or you could lose an old friend. You could hear some good news that fills you with joy or you could hear some terrible news that fills you with pain. You could give someone directions to let you know, let them know where you are, or someone could tell you to go away and get lost. You can learn something new, or you can be reminded of something you forgot. Or you could be led to Christ, or you could lead someone else to Christ. A lot can happen in one conversation. In John chapter 4, Jesus had one conversation with the woman at the well. And in this one conversation, this woman goes from unbeliever to believer. She goes from a complete stranger to a devoted disciple. She goes from a scandalous sinner to a sanctified state. And all it took was one conversation. This conversation has some key waypoints that Jesus used as he led this woman to believe in himself. And we're going to identify those key waypoints and we want to seek to apply them in the conversations that we have with unbelievers. So let's read the first 26 verses of chapter 4 and listen in on this conversation. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Last week in the previous passage of John 3, 22 through 36, we saw that Jesus had begun to attract and baptize more disciples than John the Baptist. John the Baptist said that he must increase, meaning Jesus must increase. And John said that this made his joy complete to see Jesus increasing. But not everyone was as joyful as John the Baptist. The Pharisees in Jerusalem were not joyful that Jesus was increasing. Why? Because they didn't like anyone who operated outside of their sphere of authority. They didn't like John the Baptist operating outside their sphere of authority. They were in charge. And they wanted to keep it that way. And when they'd, when they'd heard about John the Baptist, you remember, they sent a delegation out to get some answers. They wanted to know who this man was that was starting to attract attention. They were automatically suspicious of any potential threats to their status quo. And so John the Baptist was a potential threat. And they questioned him, and he said, No, I'm, I'm not the Christ. No, I'm, I'm not Elijah. No, I'm not the prophet. But he also added... There is one coming greater than I. There there is one on the way who is going to surpass me. So when the Pharisees heard that Jesus was becoming greater than John the Baptist, that got their attention. They, They were probably thinking, now wait a minute, is this the man that John the Baptist said was going to surpass him? Is this the man that was that was going to be greater than John the Baptist? 
If John the Baptist was a threat to the status quo, Jesus was a greater threat. If they were suspicious of John the Baptist, they were doubly suspicious of Jesus. If they were concerned about John the Baptist, they would have been alarmed at Jesus. Now Jesus, on his part, was not yet ready for a full-on confrontation with the Jewish leaders that would ultimately lead to his death, so he removed himself from Judea, and he traveled north to Galilee, and on the way, he had to pass through Samaria. Verse 5 tells us that they came to a town called Sychar in Samaria, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So this was a small settlement east of Shechem and Samaria. It was about a quarter mile from Jacob's well, and the field that Jacob had given Joseph was a piece of land near the city of Shechem that Jacob had bought. It's referenced in Genesis. It's later referenced in Joshua. Here's Genesis 33, 18 through 19. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land in which he had pitched his tent. So this is This is an area rich in Jewish history. This goes way back to the father of Israel. In verse 6, it tells us Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the the well. Jesus, in his human nature, wearied. He was tired. He was physically exhausted. And we're reminded that Jesus, as, as a fully... God and and fully man was just like us in his human nature. Jesus got tired like we got tired. Jesus was born and took on flesh like our flesh. He had hair like our hair. He had skin like our skin. He had blood like our blood. And he got tired. He felt pain like us. He got hungry and thirsty like us. So we worship a God who knows exactly what it's like to live and to move and to have our our being in a physical, earthly body. He experienced our experience. And this is why the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 415, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. God knows firsthand what it is like to live in these bodies. And he also knows firsthand what it's like to die in these bodies. The text tells us it was 12 noon, so middle of the day. They reckoned time from sunup, so they started the hour 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. It was noon. It was high noon. This is a detail. It's included purposefully by John. And we're going to see why in just a few minutes. It's not just some random fact. And then in verse 7, from... Here to the end of the passage, we get a picture of the the conversation. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, the fact that the woman came to draw water was not unusual. It was common for women to be the ones to draw water for themselves and for their household. No surprises there. This is normal. The fact that it was a, a woman from Samaria is not surprising. After all, they are in the middle of Samaria. They're in the heart of it. But the fact that she was alone and the fact that she came at noon was surprising. This was unusual. Women used to come and draw water in groups. 
Yes, it was a chore, but it was also time to socialize, so they would go together. They also came usually in the morning or in the evening, when it was cooler, not in the middle of the day when the heat was at its worst. So this woman came alone. She came at noon. And this is John's way of telling us something's off. Something's wrong here. Now, as, as, if we're taking the text as it unfolds, we don't know what that is yet. Now, we do know because we've read this before and I just read it a moment ago. But right here, we're not really supposed to know yet, but we are supposed to know something's off. These are clear markers from the text. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And then we have that parenthetical statement about his disciples being off buying food. So they're alone, and Jesus initiates the conversation by asking for a drink. He makes contact with this woman at the well. This move by Jesus would have been shocking to this woman. Complete shock. And we can see that in the responses. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So Jesus was a, a Jew, and she was a Samaritan. And then we have that parenthetical statement, another one at the end of verse 9, that tells us that Jews have no dealing with, dealings with Samaritans. So if you know your Bible history, you know that during the United Monarchy, under David and Solomon, there was, there was one nation of Israel, but then immediately after the death of Solomon, it split. And you've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, ten tribes and two tribes, or Israel and Judah, as they were also called. Samaria was at first the capital city of the northern kingdom. Later on, Samaria became to known, uh, became to designate the region around that city. And then finally, it, it was come to, to refer to everything, just the entire northern kingdom was referred to as Samaria. When the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrian Empire in 722, many of the people were taken away. They were exported, taken off into exile. And then the Assyrians would import their own people. But not everybody was taken away. They would leave the vine dressers, the plowmen, the woodcutters, the, the common laborers, because they didn't want to do that. They left the indigenous people there to do that kind of work. So not everybody left. But then when they had some of the people still there, they, they brought in their own people. First uh, Kings 17.24 describes this. It says, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthah, Avah, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So as a result of this deportation and importation, We've got some original people, and then we've got some people from Assyria. And they, over time, as you can imagine, they started to intermarry and live together. And they brought with them their own religious practices and idolatry. And so that started to take root in Samaria. And they began to practice those idolatrous worship practices. And they began to practice syncretism, which, which is the mixing of two different faiths together and two different practices and so by the time we get to the first century, uh, we have this kind of distortion of Judaism going on in Samaria. And over time, they had built up their own temple, which the Jews later destroyed. They had, they had their own priesthood. They had their own version of the canonical writings. But none of that was sanctioned by God. None of that came from his word. 
They've just kind of done their own thing. And so when we get to the first century, when we, when we encounter Jesus and the, and the woman at the well, there was this deep-seated animosity between Jews and Samaritans. That's putting it nicely. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. That's just the way it was. I'm not sure we can overstate the, the animosity. They didn't intermarry. They didn't talk to one another. They didn't hang out together. They didn't live together. They didn't eat together. The Jews didn't even want to, to use a, a cup or a bowl that, that a Samaritan had touched. They, they didn't want the dust of Samaria clinging to their feet. Later in chapter 8, when the Jews want to insult and discredit Jesus, the worst thing they can think of, the, the, the absolute uh, worst insult that they can give him is to call him a demon-possessed Samaritan. John eight forty eight. the Jews answered him, are we, right, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They hated each other. So Jesus was a Jew and this woman was a Samaritan. But that's not all. Jesus was also a man and this was a woman. No rabbi or teacher of the law would go anywhere near this type of scenario. They didn't talk to strange women, period. Uh, one of the rabbinical stating, uh, sayings states this, quote, a man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman on account of what men might say. This was culturally, socially taboo. It just wasn't done. It didn't happen. And we see this in the disciples' reactions. Later, uh, Lord willing, a couple of weeks from now, John 4, 27, just then his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. They didn't marvel that he was talking with this woman. They marveled that he was talking with any woman. Jesus, what are you doing? You're, you're kind of drawing outside the lines here. I think we can see why she was so shocked that Jesus initiated a conversation with her. As a Jewish man, as a rabbi, Jesus had every reason not to talk to this woman. But instead of apologizing or breaking off the conversation, he continues to talk with her. Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. First, that phrase, the gift of God. We don't need to make this any more mysterious than it is. Uh, we don't have to try to identify what that, what that gift is. Everything from God is a gift. Everything. Uh, if we use this definition of a gift, that which is given or transferred freely by one person to another, everything is grace. Everything is a gift from God. What he's saying is something like this. If you knew God's grace... And if you knew the giver of grace who sits before you, you would have asked for both. But he uses language that keys off something else that she's already interested in. Water. Verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? That's all she's hearing. Water. Water. Living water is just another way of describing running water as opposed to stagnant or still water like a river or a creek or a spring. That's living water. So in verse 12, she issues a challenge. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this will and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestocks. Uh, livestock. It's almost as if she's saying, are you serious? Don't mess with me. Are you, really? Really? 
you know of a source like this? Because I've been coming here my whole life. I know this area. I know there's no living water around here. What are you talking about? Are you greater than Jacob? Because you're going to have to be somebody pretty, pretty great to pull off what you're promising. If, if there's something like that around here, good. But this good was, is good enough for me. It was good enough for Jacob. It's still a great well. If you've got something else, let's see it. This is a challenge statement. By the way, what could Jesus have said to the question, are you greater than your father Jacob? Yes, I am. Instead, he says in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is shifting here from physical language to spiritual language. He's shifting from water to eternal life, the gift of God. And he's already pointing her to himself. We hear that two times. The water that I will give. The water that I will give twice. So he's directing the focus on himself. And he's making a shift from physical to spiritual. He's telling her, if you have what I give you, you have eternal life. What I have and what I give will satisfy and it will never stop satisfying Whoever receives my gracious gift of living water will have their soul satisfied, not only in this life, but in eternity. And with this statement, Jesus is throwing a dart at the, bull, at the target and hitting the bullseye in terms of the human heart. This, this is where the human heart repeatedly goes time and time again. As people, we search for the next thing. We want something that satisfies ultimately. We want something that brings contentedness. We want something that brings peace. We want something that makes our life calm and okay. All right, it's settled. I'm good. Things are okay. I've got green lights all the way down on my dashboard right now. Oh, that's what I'm looking for. But instead, we, we, we see something that we think is going to deliver. We see something that we think is going to, to, to make good on what we're after. And so we go for it. And we work for it. And we save for it. We strive for it. We sacrifice for it. And then we grasp it. And not long after we grasp it, it's not good enough. We want the next thing. I remember talking with a, a man who used to be in sales. And he was being honored because he was the top salesman in the country for this company. And of course, he was invited to the national convention. They invited him up on stage. He walked to the podium. He received the award. He had the applause of his, of his peers and his colleagues. He finally had it in his hand. And then he said, he went back to his hotel room and it was quiet. He was by himself and he sat on the edge of the bed and he said out loud to himself, this is it. It's never enough. 
whatever it is we're grasping for, whatever it is we're reaching for, whatever it is we're driving towards, that thing, whatever it is, it's not going to be enough. It's not going to bring contentedness. Jesus says, what I have will give you rest. What I have will give you contentedness and peace in your soul. When you reach out and take hold of me, you'll never have to reach out for anything else ever again. You'll never have to to set your sights on anything else ever again. Because what Jesus gives never dies, it never quits, it never stops, it never runs out. It is abiding and enduring. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. To the woman, this message is personalized. Remember, Jesus knows her. He knows what's in her heart. He knows her history. She doesn't know that yet. But we know that. He knows her. And so he's delivering this message. And he's saying nothing in this life can ultimately satisfy. If we take a peek just for a moment, he's saying, kind of like you. You're going from man to man to man. Hoping that the the next one will be it. He said it's never going to satisfy. And she's already getting this message. Look at verse 15. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's saying, I want that. Whatever, whatever that is, what you just said, I want that. I want that life. I want that eternal life that you just said. I want that living water. She doesn't know exactly what he's talking about, but whatever it is, yes, I want that. I want whatever you're telling me about. I want it all. Why? So that it will not be thirsty again. Literally, spiritually, yes, But then she adds, or have to come here to draw water. Now that's strange. Because let's say this man delivers on the living water. She's still going to have to go there to draw it. So it's not drawing water that's the issue. It's drawing water here at Jacob's well. Why would she not want to draw water at this this well that was uh, part of Israel's history? I mean... This was Jacob's well. Why would she not want to draw water there? Again, something's off. Something's wrong. Verse 16, go call your husband and come here. John 2.25 says, Jesus knows what is in a man. He knew what was in this woman's heart. He knew her history. He knew her sinful lifestyle. It's almost as if he's saying, okay, you want me to give you this eternal life? It starts with me convicting you of your sin. Let's start there. Before we can move forward, we need, we need to deal with this. The first thing Jesus does is bring conviction. He's revealing her need for forgiveness. Her need for an imputed righteousness that's not her own. Her need for a savior. Her need for himself. She says, I have no husband. Which is a confession. That's a confession. Jesus responds by saying, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And all of a sudden, everything makes sense. That something's off, that something's wrong, makes sense. She was drawing water alone. Now we know why. She was coming at noon. Now we know why. She wanted to, to know about another water source where she could go there instead of this one. Now we know why. She was a scandalously sinful woman. 
She comes alone because she's not welcome with the other women in the community. She comes at noon because she does not want to be there when anyone else is there and, and be on the receiving end of the hard stares and the, the, the quiet whispers behind her back. Now, I am aware of a modern interpretation that makes or attempts to make this woman into a virtuous woman. I don't know if you've heard that or not. Um, it goes something like this. Well, we don't know what happened. Maybe she just happened to lose five husbands. Maybe she's widowed five times. Or uh, it could be that we've gotten it wrong. She's actually well-respected in the community, and that's why they received her testimony about Jesus and believed. That interpretation is completely out of line with the plain meaning of the text. Scripture is going out of its way right here to scream at us, this is an immoral woman. First of all, the fact that she's drawing water alone at noon is best explained by the scandalous sin. It's best explained by a tarnished reputation in the community. Second of all, Jesus said she has five husbands, or she had five husbands. The vast uh, majority of, of serious Bible scholars are united that this is by divorce, not death. It's been called, quote, utterly improbable that she would have been widowed five times. Instead, much more likely that she's been divorced and put away by five different husbands. Why? The next part of the verse tells us she's living a lifestyle of ongoing, unrepentant sin. Jesus says she's currently with or having a man that is not her husband. So she's sleeping with someone else's husband. And somebody might say, well, you don't know. It could have been a single guy. Okay, fornicating. Ongoing, unrepentant sin of fornication. Either way. And I would have us not read in our culture into the first century. There, there was no uh, singles nightlife in the first century. Everybody got married. Everybody got married young. And everybody had kids. There were no single guys. Most likely she was sleeping with someone else's husband. That's how we're to read it. They got married young. They, their average lifespan was 35 to 40 years. Do the math. Five husbands? The picture that we arrive at as based on Jesus' infallible knowledge of this woman is that she was a serial adulterer. This explains why she's been divorced and put away five times. It explains her current ongoing choice to live in sexual immorality and explains why she's not drawing water with the other women at the well. If we take this woman as a virtuous woman or as a poor, unfortunate soul who just happened to be widowed five times, then we're missing what's on the page in front of us. Remember, this is being laid out intentionally by John. What do we have in John chapter 2? Jesus knows what is in a man. Then what do we have in John chapter 3? The example of Nicodemus, a Jewish Pharisee man. And then in chapter 4, we have example of the woman at the well, a Samaritan immoral woman. You couldn't pick two more completely polar opposite examples to pit against one another to make John's point. And the point is this. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan, which the Jews hates, hated. It doesn't matter if you're a man. Or it doesn't matter if you're a woman. It doesn't matter if you are, have checked all the boxes in terms of uh, religious, um, obeying the law, following the law, teaching, upbringing, social status, or if you have no boxes checked in that category. That's John's point. 
So let, let's not read into or try to, to take this woman off the hook for her sin. This is how Jesus portrays her. When Jesus reveals her sin, she confesses it. She could have said, uh, he's away on a caravan trading goods, or uh, he's out in the field, he can't come right now, or uh, he's really sick, I don't want to bother him. No, instead she says, no, I, I have no husband. That's a confession. And when Jesus reveals her sinful history, she does not deny it. Instead, she asks about the proper place of worship. The only way verse 19 makes sense is to remember what's happening. Jesus has offered her eternal life. She wanted what Jesus was offering. She confessed her sin, and now she wants to get right with God. She's turning to God. She wants eternal life. She wants rest and contentment. She wants what this man is offering. Make my pain go away. Make my shame go away. Tell me where I need to turn to make my life right with God because I have ruined it through reckless, sinful living. I want something. I'm thirsting for something to give me my life back. What she's really asking is, where do I need to go? What must I do? to be saved. I've confessed my sin. Where do I go to worship God? Where do I need to turn to if I really want to fully place myself into God's hands? Where do I find forgiveness? Where do I start over? And then she looks at Jesus. You, Jewish man, you obviously are some kind of prophet. You have supernatural knowledge to say what you just said about me. Okay, I'll go with whatever you say because I've got two options here. I've been brought up thinking that I should worship here in Samaria. But you guys down in Jerusalem say that's the proper way to worship. Where do I go? With everything I've been taught? With the way I've, been, with the way I've grown up? Or, or what, what you say? You're, you're the holy man. You're the prophet. What must I do to be saved? In 21, Jesus' answer is direct and revolutionary. He says, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's saying there is a time coming very soon where it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter? Right. Correct. It doesn't matter if you're here. It doesn't matter if you're there. It's not going to matter at all. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So he does point out false religion. He says, yes, what you've been taught is wrong. What your parents have taught you, that's incorrect. You need to walk away from that. The Jews are correct. Insofar as they are following the ceremonial laws revealed by God, yes, that's, that's correct. That temple worship. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. You'll see spirit is not capitalized because he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. Spirit and truth, spirit meaning from the heart. Worship is, is in here, in your heart. It's in here, in your head. It's your inner being. It's not about going through some kind of ceremonial motions or making sure you do this and that. It's about what's going on in here between you and God. Truth, Christ-centered worship. Before Christ, the people were worshiping. Yes, they were worshiping according to the commandments. They were worshiping through the ceremonial law, through the temple and through the sacrifices, but those were types and shadows. Those were symbols. Now that Christ has come, they're worshiping according to the truth of Jesus Christ. The time is coming when people are going to worship 
in full truth and knowledge of Jesus Christ, his person and his work on the cross. That's true worship. Christ-centered worship is true worship. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. In fact, Jesus is seeking one right now. What irony. Jesus is leading this woman to faith in himself as they are talking in this conversation. God does not wait for people to seek him out. Unbelievers do not seek out God on their own initiative. He calls them, whether they're ready or not, by the power of his spirit. So Jesus is saying God will not be worshipped through formality or ritual or ceremony uh, detached from an ongoing heart commitment and lifestyle of living out faithfulness and obedience to God. We could put it this way. There is no worship of God without walking with Jesus. There's no worship of God without walking with Jesus. And we're almost to the end of the conversation now. It says, well, she's confessed her sin. She's accepted Jesus' words. She's arrived at an understanding that her Samaritan upbringing is, is incorrect. And that even temple worship in Jerusalem is no longer the answer. And yet she couldn't possibly have completely grasped everything that he's throwing at her. This is the ultimate trying to take a drink from the, the, the fire hydrant. There's just too much going on. And she recognizes that. So she expresses her longing for the Messiah. And I have to confess, for the longest time, I, I misunderstood this verse. When, when she says, I know the Messiah is coming, when he comes, he will tell us all things. I used to think that was a final challenge. I used to think that was the woman saying, well, uh, you say that, we say that. Who's to say? Let's just agree to disagree. Let's wait for the Messiah. Then we'll know for sure. But we really can't tell until he comes. I don't think that's what's going on here. This woman is broken. She's confessed her sin and she is seeking God with her whole heart. She recognizes that she's not on the right page. She recognizes she needs to grow. She needs to to go and get right with God. And so she recognizes she needs a teacher. She needs a savior. And so she's looking for the Messiah. This woman, we don't want to miss this. This woman is placing her hope and faith in the Christ who is standing before her. She doesn't know that he's the Christ, but she is placing her hope and faith in the Christ. The Messiah, when he comes, that's the one I'll follow. The Christ, when he comes, that's the one I'll listen to. That's the one that I want to become a disciple of. That's the one who's going to to be my, my head, my Lord. Which makes the next verse all the more powerful. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Literally in the Greek, ego in me, I am. The personal name of God revealed to Moses. Yahweh, I am the one speaking to you. From stranger to disciple, from unbeliever to believer, from scandalous sinner to sanctified saint, in one conversation, that's all it took. This passage is very easy to summarize. Jesus departed from Judea and traveled to Galilee. On his way, he became weary and stopped by Jacob's well in Samaria, where he met a woman drawing water. 
Jesus initiated a conversation with her and gracefully yet powerfully led her to faith in himself. That's it. That's what's happening. And it took one conversation with her. This whole thing probably took minutes. She'd never met him before. And by the end, she was a follower of Jesus. There's a lot here in this one conversation we, between Jesus and the woman in the well. I mean, he, he covered a lot of ground. We could talk about the difference between Judaism and, and Samaritan worship. We could talk about their, their ongoing hatred and why that was. Uh, we could talk about how Christ is the fulfillment of all the old covenant types and shadows and what Christ-centered worship is today. Yes, we could do all that, but what John has presented here in chapter 4 is the encounter between Jesus and this woman. And the big idea here is that this is one conversation where Jesus took her from unbelief to belief. So that's where we want to go with our application. And before we dig in, let's point this out. Is this a picture? Here's Jesus taking an unbeliever to belief in one conversation. Is this a picture of what it should look like for us when we have conversations with unbelievers. In other words, when we have a conversation with someone who's not in Christ, should we expect it to be normative that after one conversation, they're going to come to faith in Christ? I don't think so. I don't think that should be normative. I don't think that should be the expectation in the sense that if it doesn't happen, we beat ourselves up as if we're doing something wrong or that we messed up. Can it happen? Yes. But it's not normative. Let's look at some of these key waypoints. Maybe we're doing some of these things, maybe we're not. But this is our Lord and Master leading someone to faith in himself, and we would do well to pay attention. Here is the rubber meets the road application. This is for us as believers as we engage in conversations with unbelievers. So key waypoint number one, contact. That seems obvious, but look what Jesus did. He placed himself in an area where he was going to make contact with an unbeliever, and he initiated the conversation. It's pretty basic. If we don't make contact with unbelievers, then we're not going to have conversations with unbelievers. There were uh, two friends, uh, two young men, out of high school, but still, still young men. They were playing video games one Friday night, which they did often. And they were Christians. And as they were playing, they were talking about faith and, and some passages they'd read, and they liked to sharpen one another. And eventually the conversation turned towards evangelism, and they became convicted that they weren't sharing their faith. Here they were, in somebody's basement playing video games when, when there were people out there that hadn't heard of the gospel. So, so one friend turned to the other and said, you know what, we should do that right now. And the other friends would, said, what do you mean? He said, we should go share the gospel with somebody right now, tonight. And the other friend said, well, hey, it's Friday night. I think the, the high school's having a home game tonight. Why don't we go there and share our faith? So they decided to do that. And they went out and they, they split up at the gate and they said, you know, go for it. We'll, we'll talk. We'll meet back at my house and we'll see how things went. Well, they met back a couple hours later 
And one friend said excitedly, I did it. I did it. I, I just walked around and I, I ended up standing next to somebody and we were watching the game and we talked and eventually I, I, I introduced some, some topics and we got on the topic of God. I ended up, I was sharing the gospel. I, I did it. I shared the gospel with somebody. Why? Because they made contact. They were intentional about making contact. So key way point number one, contact. And whenever we give ourselves an excuse or a way out or why, well, maybe I shouldn't remember, Jesus had every reason not to talk to that woman. So we really don't have an excuse. Contact. Number two, shift from physical to spiritual. Jesus started with water. He shifted to the grace of God and eternal life. We saw that in the text. He started with something she was interested in. He shifted to the things of God. At some point, we are going to have to shift the conversation from talking about work or who has the best pizza in the area or who has the best burgers in the area or what our plans are for the weekend or what our plans are for the summer or what we're currently watching on Netflix or whatever it is that we usually talk about when we're making small talk with acquaintances and people. And we're going to have to turn it to spiritual things. We're going to have to shift from earthly to spiritual. And when I say shift, this is a manual transmission, not an automatic. If you wait for the conversation to naturally or organically or automatically shift to the spiritual, it's not going to happen. Unbelievers don't naturally want to talk about the things of God. You're going to have to push the clutch in and shift it to spiritual things. And you can get there from anywhere. We're talking about work. How do you get there from work? Well, we can talk about work and if you don't work on the weekends, you can say, well, at least I don't have to work on the weekends because Sundays are a big deal to me. I, I worship every Sunday. Oh, really? Where? Boom, you're talking about spiritual things. TV. Oh, yeah, what have you been watching lately? Well, the last good thing I watched was this, but I'm trying not to watch TV that much. I'm trying to read more, and I'm actually reading my Bible. Boom, you just shifted. Plans for the weekend. Church, shifted. You can get there from anywhere, but you have to manually shifted yourself. So key waypoint number one, contact. Key waypoint number two, shift from physical to spiritual. Key waypoint number three, reveal the need. Now Jesus knows all things about all people. So he could go directly to this woman's specific sin and, and hit it. We don't know people's specific sins. That's a good thing. But we do know this, everyone is a sinner. We know that all people have a need for a Savior. And so it's a good thing we don't know everyone's specific sins. And that's probably a good thing because we, we don't go there automatically. If you know someone's specific sin, if it's glaring, if it's obvious, you could... Um, Depending on the conversation, generally, that's probably not the best way because you may come across as um, holier than thou or self-righteous or judgmental. But you can, in certain contexts, the, the easier way is to start with your own sin. Just talk about yourself. That's, that's pretty non-threatening. 
Reveal the need. You're already talking about spiritual things. Confess. I'm not perfect. Most people will immediately chime in in agreement. Yeah, I'm not either. Yeah, I, I have sin in my life. Now that might throw them off a little bit, but you're talking about sin. You're already talking about spiritual things. Talk to them about how you were convicted of your sin. Talk to them about how God has made a difference in your life in, in the sanctification process. Maybe talk about a couple specific sins. And then turn it towards them. Talk about judgment. Talk about a final reckoning before God. Talk about what happens when we die. Most unbelievers generally suppress those types of conversations. So you're going to bring these things up. You're revealing a need. I'm a sinner, so are you. God demands perfect righteousness. What are you going to do? And then number four, reveal Jesus. Don't hang out on number three for very long without revealing the antidote. This woman was ready. This woman was reaching out in faith and in her own words saying, what must I do to be saved? And at that point, Jesus revealed himself. Point people to faith in Jesus. Explain the gospel in your own words. Yes, I'm a sinner. But praise God, he made provision for me and for everyone else who's a sinner in the sending of his son. I've lived an imperfect life. I've lived a sinful life. Jesus was sent. He, he was God incarnate, took on flesh. He lived that perfect life. He never once sinned in thought, in, in motivation, in, in deed. He was perfect. He kept the law. And that's what God demands. He did it. And then he willingly went to the cross and he offered himself up as a payment for our sin to satisfy the wrath of God. When someone turns to Christ in faith, God promises to forgive their sin. And because the righteousness of Jesus, that perfect record, gets imputed or credited to us, then he can legally declare us righteous. And the penalty for our sin has been paid for on the cross. Jesus took the wrath of God on our behalf. That's the answer to our sinful state. Well, what about verses 21 through 24, where Jesus corrected her wrong ideas about Samaritan beliefs, what she'd been taught and what she'd grown up believing? Yes, uh, let's call that a waypoint, but let's not call it a key waypoint. Okay? She asked. If someone asks, then we can respond. I, I think it's a, a really good idea to be prepared to, to address false belief systems, but uh, we don't have to go there unless we're asked. Um, it's not our goal to set out and bash all the false religions in the world. It's our goal to share Christ. But if someone asks, we should be prepared. Say, yeah, those don't save. Uh, none of those work. Uh, all world religions and and invented belief systems are about what people do to make themselves right with God. Christianity is about what Christ has done on our behalf. We put our faith in Christ, not in what we do. Show those. Show the fact that everything, unless it agrees with Scripture about Jesus, is false. Any belief system has to, has to believe about Jesus what the Bible says about Jesus. 
So if there's a belief system that denies the resurrection, it's a false belief. If there's a, a belief system or a religion that denies the deity of Christ, it's false. If someone's proclaiming a message that de- denies the need for repentance and belief, it's false. So yes, waypoint, but not a, a key waypoint. The key waypoints are contact, shift from physical to spiritual, reveal the need, and reveal the Savior. Have you ever watched someone do something and they're really, really good at it? I remember watching a documentary one time about um, auto body work. Okay, so fixing dents and scratches, also paint, any kind of custom work that you would do on, on the body of a car. And they, they focused in on one man whose job was pinstriping. And we don't see it too much today, but it used to be a big deal, and people paid money for this, uh, like putting a, a line down the, the side of the car, or sometimes dual lines, right down the side of the car from bumper to fender. And this guy didn't have a machine. Uh, he didn't have any special tools. He had a brush and a tin of paint. And he would sit down and dip it once into the paint, and start with a little fancy design and then just immediately go in and draw this line and he would go all the way down the car and the line would be perfectly straight, perfectly even, the same amount of thickness the whole way down, flawless. And then he would do it again because a lot of these had two stripes. He would do the second line right next to the first line, perfect. Equal distance from the first line all the way down the car. He was perfect. And I remember watching that saying, How does he do that? Of course, we know the answer. Years of experience, lots of practice. You get one shot at doing that. That's it. And he got it perfect every time. We have witnessed in this passage the master craftsman doing what he does best. In one conversation, he led a complete stranger to faith in himself. And our first thought might be, how does he do that? Well, he's Jesus. (laughs) We're never going to get that good. And he doesn't ask us to be. All he asks us to do is pick up the paintbrush and start painting. All he asks us to do is to open our mouths and start proclaiming. He does the work of calling people. He does the work of regenerating hearts. He just asks us to have a conversation. When was the last time you had this type of conversation with someone? Would we pray this morning for God to give us an opportunity to have this kind of a conversation with an unbeliever? One conversation with someone he places in our path. Amen. Father, that is our prayer. We, we look to scripture and we see the master calling an unbeliever to belief in himself. Lord, we ask that we would have similar conversations, that, that we would make contact, that we would follow this, these key waypoints, that we would be able to proclaim the gospel. And Father, we ask that you would provide the accompanying power of the Holy Spirit, that you would bring them to faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand and sing our final hymn, It Is Well With Our Souls.